Thank you for joining us this morning at Genesis Community Church. My name is Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here, which is a joy. If you are a guest, glad that you're here. I would love to meet you. Uh, others would love to meet you. Others probably have already met you. And so, thanks. It's a good morning to be together, to be around the Word, and that's what we'll be doing. We're marching through the Gospel of John. We're doing that up through Easter. We'll do that after Easter. I'm not sure how many more forever weeks we'll be here, but we'll be here a while. Um, and we're getting into, I mean, to say we're getting into the good parts isn't really fair because they've all been good. Uh, but there's also, as you, as you get into parts that are a little different than ones you've read before, it can get a little fun. I, I want to ask you, you this, if you're turning there, uh, John chapter 4. But uh, do you have people in your life, no pointing fingers, especially if you're married to this person? <clears throat> do you have people in your life who, when they say something, you don't hold your breath? When they say, oh, hey, yeah, I'll be there, I'll do that. I'll go to that thing, see you there, where you just go, you know what, I might as well just schedule another, another thing on top of it, because I know it probably won't happen. And so uh, I was talking with a friend even today, I said, yeah, when I uh, got to your house, I thought that everyone was going to be awake and rolling and everything was ready to go, and he's like, you clearly don't know us, because I was like, it looked like everybody was asleep. He said, we were. <laughs> and so... Yes, like I said, if you've done the little marriage tap to your spouse saying, that's you, honey, uh, you might know what I'm talking about. You know, the, you take two cars to things because you just don't want to wait for the other person to either be ready <clears throat> or you're going to want to leave before they want to leave. And so you're like, we're a two-car family. We just would rather take the budget hit on gas money and drive separately so that the time-sensitive person can be there when they want and the person who has no, no actual understanding of time, doesn't own a watch, they can do what they want. You might be this person, right? But, but what happened, it's funny, because I would guess, it's, it's always binary, but we go, hey, you're probably one, you're kind of one of two people. You're either, you either trust people when they say what they're going to do, or you don't. You've been burned too many times, and so you have a trust problem. Uh, or you're a little more suspicious of people when they say they're going to do something. Anybody who has done general contracting knows this. They go, yeah, here, it'll be done by whenever. And you're like, okay, well, that, that whenever was a year ago, you know. So what's whenever plus 365 days? Whenever infinity? But it is true for many of us, not for all of us. Some of you are really high trust. John Weichbrot, one of our elders, super high trust. Like He's just like... Yeah, it'll be great. Everything's going to be great. It's all awesome. I'm like, what? No, the world's falling apart. Trust can be hard to come by. I would say many of us by nature are suspicious. Maybe we have a hard time taking people at their word. We have a hard time when somebody says something, we go, I believe you. This is going to happen. You can bank on it. And so if you've learned, which many of us do, if you've learned anything, then you just learn to undercommit. Right? Under promise, over deliver. That's better. Over promise and under deliver. Because then people think you're great. It might not be, but they think it. But what about, because we, we here at Genesis are we're a Bible people. We take the scriptures seriously. But the scriptures say things that we may or may not believe, that we may or may not actually act on. 
where they say something, and we go, I'm not really sure if that's true. They say things that we might doubt, or they say things that are clear that we just ignore. So I want to ask you this. If we really are a, a Bible people, if we really do take what Jesus says seriously, if that's true about us, and I'm going to assume it is, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt today, which I don't normally do. Let's assume it's true. I want to ask you this. Can you take Jesus at his word? Can you take Jesus at his word? That when he says something is true, it is true. When he says something will happen, it will happen. When something's promised, you can bank on it. When something's not promised, you don't bank on it. That's one of our things we learn in, you know, in seminary. A principle is not a promise. Right? Because something might happen doesn't mean something will happen. And you get burned if you count on something that might happen as a will happen. So can we take him at his word? It's one of the hardest things we'll do. And in fact, wherever you are today, if you're walking with the Lord, if you have a relationship with Jesus, the rest of your life from here on, wherever it is or where it's been, is trying to go, God, are you trustworthy? Now you might say blanketly, like if I just go, true or false, do you think God can be trusted? My guess is a large majority of this room would say true. My guess. Again, I'm counting on you. But what about when Jesus talks about persecution? What about when he says, go and make disciples of all nations? And I will be with you always. What about when he says, don't fear man because man can only take your life. Fear God, who can take your life and cast you into hell. Those statements are a little different. Not as comfortable to go, yeah, I'm in. Right? If it's like, hey, I'm going to meet you at your birthday party and I'm going to give you a really cool gift. Well, I want to count on that. But when it's, don't fear man, because all they can do is kill you, that's a little less comforting. So take what Jesus says, multiply it by our just lack of trust in people, and you can understand why very often churches look as they do, which is a lot of participation in things, little confidence in what, they, what, what, what the scriptures actually say, maybe even little obedience to what they say. We see this in John 4. John 4, 43 through 54, you've already heard it read. We have an encounter of Jesus with an official's son, Jesus with an official son, and what you'll see is this movement of trust in Jesus' words. He has an attraction to Jesus that gets him in front of him, gets him an audience. He has interest in what Jesus has said, and then he has a deeper confidence as time has gone on. Now, this is happening over the course of about two days. Many of our processes take much longer in our trusting of Jesus. But we're really going to see two things. We'll see the incomplete motivations for coming to Jesus. Incomplete meaning they don't save. They might get you interested, but they don't get you forgiven. Then we'll see Jesus as that gracious healer. And then we'll go back to that question. Can we take Jesus at his word? Can we take Jesus at his word? So we start with man. 
And we all have, I mean, let's just be honest, we all have incomplete motivations for coming to Jesus. Let's just look at a few that are here in this passage. People who are motivated to come to Jesus because of his signs. Because he does things that are cool. We've seen this in John 2, where people are enamored with him because of the signs that he does, but he doesn't trust himself with that. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 goes, we know you've come from God because no one could do the works that you do unless he came from God. So there's an interest in Jesus because of things that he does. Almost, I mean, almost like he's a slot machine. If I go to this thing enough, and I pull the lever, will something come out that I enjoy? And so people are interested in Jesus because of, because of what he's doing. And what that might mean for them. You, look at, look at, you can look and see this in verse 45 of chapter 4. The people of Galilee welcome him back because of the signs. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Now he had just left Samaria where he had, I would say, the most effect, effective in an earthly sense and in a spiritual sense, the most effective ministry that he has had in regards to people trusting him. He's had his most effective ministry in Samaria with the religious outsiders. Now he's going back to his hometown, his people, and he's going to minister there, but we have this comment from John that prophet is without honor in this area. Why? Well, they're only accepting him because of the signs that he does. He's welcomed back because it's like, oh my gosh, have you seen it? Have you seen the guy that can do stuff? If any of you are like the grandparent or had the grandparent that had, can do sleight of hand, which is really cool, but I can do a magic trick, where'd the coin go, where's this, what's this, make something float, whatever else, right? Like, then what happens when the grandkids come over? Do a trick. One of my grandparents would hand out $5 bills when the grandkids came by. Right, right? Like when we go see Grandpa Googer is what we call them. When we go see him, that wallet gets opened up and $5 bills get thrown out. And I become the richest 8-year-old in the world. So what happens when you get to Grandpa's house? Please! All right? You know, tickle this palm. I'm ready. You give out dollars. I have a palm. I haven't seen you in a few months. Come on. I mean, but honestly, that's how people are treating Jesus. He's coming to town, and what do they want? Do something. We are so glad you're here. You do things, and those things are cool, and we like it. That's incomplete. That is an incomplete comprehension of what Jesus can be for people, how he saves them. And he's it really, I mean, his ministry is so that they might be saved, not so that they might think he's cool. Right now they think he's cool. In fact, when the official comes to him, Jesus responds almost in exasperation in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Anybody who has a little bit of a, a biblical framework for signs and wonders should recognize this. They often lead nowhere. And what I mean by that is not that God doesn't move in them. What I mean by that is it doesn't produce in people something saving. 
it produces in people something interesting. Right? Like, this is, this is neat. I mean, so just, just think of a few examples. Right? Think of what happened in Egypt. We went through the book of Exodus together. All of the plagues were rather phenomenal. God had said, I will save you out of the hand of the Egyptians. And the people get saved out of the hand of the Egyptians in just the way God said. And then what happens? Disbelief, disbelief, disbelief. And any of us are going, are you crazy? How could you ever, after God did that for you, how could you wander from him? And the right response to that is, are you crazy? Do you know yourself? Do you know me? Right? Signs are cool for a moment. And then you move on. And if you're like me, you start to go, what was the sleight of hand that did that? Or you jump on YouTube and you see the videos of fake faith healers who just put on a show. And you go, oh, that's why. So the people welcome him in Galilee back. He's leaving Samaria. He's going back to where he should be accepted, but he's not, which is reflective of John 1, where he goes, he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, earlier in chapter 4, the Samaritans, they received him. They believed he was the savior of the world. Now he goes to Galilee. They receive him because of the stuff he does. Give me $5, Jesus. Do something cool. We love it. Now his signs do confirm. We'll see that in chapter 5. His signs are confirming of being the Messiah, having God's hand on him. But that was to confirm something about him, not to just drum up interest. So that's an incomplete motivation, the signs that Jesus does. You know what another incomplete motivation is? Incomplete because it doesn't get us all the way there? Desperation. Desperation. How many people get involved, let's just say, in a church because their life has gone haywire? And then once it gets put back together, it gets a little less haywire and they leave. Right? So I have an acute need. I'm going to go to Jesus. Jesus is going to fix it. And when it gets better, I'm going to, we treat Jesus like a doctor. Something's not working. Can we get this right? He goes, yeah, we can get that right. You start operating in a different way. You feel good. You stop going. Because things are all right. I mean, how many of you, when you get your instructions to take the antibiotic until the bottle is empty, ever do that? <clears throat> you take it till you feel better. You go, well, you know, right? And then you give it to your kids when they get sick, even though you're not supposed to. You go, well, you know, we have some leftover from when they were sick because we didn't finish it. It's a year and a half old, but I doubt it goes bad. It's not going to kill you, we don't think. But just take it because I don't want to pay another copay. So look at verse 46. He comes to Cana in Galilee where he has turned the water into wine. And at Capernaum, that's about 20 miles away, a one day's walk. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Desperation. I need Jesus to do something for my family. I can't get it fixed anywhere else. I've heard some stories about this guy. I want him to do the things that he's been doing. I want him to do them for my son. Jesus has his statement in 48 of exasperation. It's like the official doesn't even listen. He says, 
come down before my child dies. Jesus, right before that, Jesus goes, unless you want, get a sign, you'll never believe. And he's like, I got it. I understand what you're saying. Can you please come and heal him? Incomplete, just because of the signs he does. Incomplete, just because of desperation. It is true that we get calls or, you know, churches get calls or emails or pastors get calls or emails or whatever else when somebody runs out of money. Churches are nice. Churches give money. When you run out of money, church will call you. When everything's in shambles, you might, you know, might call the church. Right? So we, desperation. I need something. I'm not sure what. Now, the Lord does use those moments. He does use those moments of not knowing where to go. But just getting the moment relieved with what you think the issue is, because the official thinks the issue is, my son's sick. That's why he's there. It really, I'm not concerned about you being Messiah. I'm not, con- I'm not concerned about these other things. I have a sick son. Can you take care of him? These motivations might move us towards Jesus, but they don't solve the biggest problem that we have, which is our sin in our faith that Jesus is the Son of God who saves us from our sins. And yet that is what we do. In churches, we get really good at this. We get really good at putting on a Jesus show for you so that you are interested and come back. And it, or at least give. Even if you don't come back, could you just set up regular recurring giving so we can pay our bills? Right? Ever feel that churches act that way? It's like, I'm sorry that you haven't been coming for a while, but I'm more concerned that you've stopped giving. And so we, you know, we can be tempted to put on the Jesus show for people, focusing on lesser concerns than the condition of people's souls, so that they show up. That's the, uh, the pastor counting technique of nickels and noses. How many dollars have been given and how many people are showing up. It's a rather incomplete way of understanding if people are meeting and following the Lord Jesus. But makes us feel good. Keeps the lights on. That's important. Come see Jesus, the healer. Like like it's the greatest showman. That's not what it is. And we're not going to do a song and dance. Well, Matt might one day. He's not going to do it? Yeah. I got the biggest no shake from Matt I've ever gotten. Now, here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing about this. Think about it for a second. People are excited to see Jesus because he's going to hand out, in their eyes, $5 bills. He's going to do things. He's going to do things for them. So they welcome him gladly. The official hears where Jesus is. Now, word is moving about. Why? Because Jesus does things. And so the official goes, I need that from him. He's a healer. I need healing for my son. I'm going to go. And it's amazing what happens. Because even though the motivations are incomplete, Jesus is a gracious healer. This is one of the most, uh, from, from Hans's perspective, one of the most bonkers things about the Lord is that he recognizes Their hard-heartedness. He recognizes 
impure motivation to find him, and he still heals. That's what's crazy to me. Because what do we do? What do we do? Could you please get right, get this thing in order, figure this out, right? Like Jesus wasn't asking for receipts from the official son. How many doctors have you been to? What medications has he been on? Have you tried this? Have you tried, like when you go to a referral and they just ask you all the same questions? He didn't do that. Even, even as he, in a sense, marvels at their lack of confidence in him as Messiah, look at what still happens. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. Jesus is 20 miles away. And he's saying to this man, Go, your son will will live at his word he says something and what happens what happens look at the other half of verse 50 the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way he doesn't plead that Jesus follows he doesn't say you must be beside him what does he say go your son may live now I'm just going to give you a little footnote where we might get confused in something called the hypostatic union, Jesus being fully God and fully man. You, compare, you take that, and then we look at a passage like Philippians 2, which say that he emptied himself, and we start to figure out what in the world Jesus emptied himself of. It wasn't, now hear me here, it wasn't omnipresence. Jesus was not limited geographically in healing. Right? He didn't have to be in the same room with the person. He didn't have to have binoculars and be able to see them. Even you know how we do this. We do this. Like when we pray for people, hey, if you're in a room, reach out a hand toward them. Right? Like Jesus didn't have to reach out a hand in the direction of the man, Jesus, or his son. He didn't have to put his hand on the official so that the, so that the power would pass through the official as he went. All Jesus had to do, even at a distance, was to say, go, your son will live. The will of Jesus is enacted regardless in his ministry of where he was physically present, where he was in the moment. And sometimes we don't think like that because we go, oh, Jesus was clearly, yeah, yeah, he was in his body because of the incarnation. He was present in certain spaces at certain times, but his will was enacted anywhere, anywhere. To say, go, your son will live, that's a statement only God can make. That's something only God could say. The one who heals. The one who has power and authority in his word and broken bodies respond. They respond. Go, your son will live. And so the man believed and went on his way. Now, I'm going to tell you, any parents or grandparents or friends or you've been this, anyone who has had a sick child is going to have a hard time believing somebody, in general, a hard time believing somebody if that person just goes, everything will be fine. 
I mean, just two verses ago, what's he saying? My son's about to die. Will you come see him? You must come. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. One of, and there's there's multiple expressions of faith in this, but as we talk about faith, faith must have, as a part of its component, trust. Confidence in what is being said and that it can be relied on. This means we don't have blind faith, which is sometimes how we talk about it. Oh, yeah, I just trust. I'm like, no, no, you trust in something. You trust in someone. The man heard what Jesus said, and it took trust in what Jesus said to be able to leave him and go back home. And you know, I, I think there's some clues in the text that even as this was going on, that man wasn't fully confident that it was going to happen. But he heard Jesus, and he did what Jesus said. Okay. I believe it. Now, watch what we see. Verse 51. As he, this was the ruler, was going down, because geographically you're going down toward uh, the Sea of Galilee, as he was going down... His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. His son was was getting better, was recovering. So he asked the hour when this happened. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Verse 53. The man knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself, there's that word again, believed, and all his household. The reason I say he, had to, he left the Lord and was going home, and I think he was still going, I really hope this works. I, I, like, like that, that, that's, that's 40 miles of walking, and I, and I don't even, I, I'm not even leaving with Jesus. He just said something. That's two days burned. If I get home and my son is still sick, I'm a fool. I'm a fool and I never should have believed in that man. And so as he's going back and his servants meet him and he goes, what time did that happen? And they tell him the time. And he went, okay. Okay. I believe. Now, belief has already shown up once in this passage. And there had to have been enough belief earlier in the passage for the man to even get to Jesus. But what do you see? This is often the same way that we still operate with the Lord. Where we go, I'm interested in this guy. Now, maybe it's because, maybe this is your story. Maybe because there were believers around you who were loving. Remember, Jesus says this in John 13. The world will know you're my disciples if you love you have for one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love. And so perhaps it's the love of that community that draws you near. You might just go, the believers in my life are just kinder or more forgiving. That would be a hope. It can't be a promise, but it can be a hope. Right? The people at Genesis are a more loving, more hospitable, more gracious people. 
There's something about them. I want to be around that. And they're not even sure why they want to be around it. I mean, this happens to all of us. They're not even sure why they want to be around it. They just know when I come, people love me. When I'm here, they say hi to me. And I've had that. When people join this church, they'll say something sometimes like, I really do. When, like, the people at Genesis are nice. So way to go, guys, you know. They're nice. They'll say that as a reason they stuck around. I was met right when I walked in, but it didn't feel like I was being super pressured like you were selling a car. Because who likes walking onto a car, like a car lot? Worst experience in the world. Justin does. You're a, you're, a, you're a bargain guy, though. You're a haggler. You don't count. Everybody but Justin probably doesn't like going onto car lots. But yet when we leave, we always feel like we got a good deal. And so, so we don't do that here. And people will notice that. They care about me. They're interested in me. But they're not like, what do I got to do to keep you at this church forever? Like, that doesn't happen. Our hope, my prayer, our prayer is that that, that really is Christ in our church. It's not just that we've learned how to be nice or not overbearing, but because really Christ's love is manifest in this community. And that's what people experience. And, and so that might be movement one. That gets you here. That gets you, that gets you around the Lord in a sense because you're around his people. But then there might be some movement where maybe you're here or you're in community group and, and, and you just start to go, I'm just going to start trying to, to, to live in the way that this says. Which, okay, don't get me wrong, that doesn't get you saved just to do some of the things that are in the Bible. But you go, I'm going to try and just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try, uh, I'm, it says to be a more loving husband, I'm going to be a more loving husband. And so you start to do that. But maybe you run up against it, it doesn't work right, something's broken. But now you start to kind of operate within what's happening. That's kind of in that you see this in the man, that's kind of like phase two. Jesus says something, he's like, okay, I will go home now. Your son will be healed. But then you realize something else, which is, oh my gosh, this guy's the Messiah. Right? And then it's like that watershed movement. You're like, no longer is he just cool. No longer is he just interesting. No longer is it just nice that he has good teaching. He actually saves people from hell. But you see this, you see the same kind of movement right in like last week's passage, John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. She goes and she says, Come meet a man who's told me everything about me. Could this be the Messiah, the Christ? And the townspeople come. And they say, stay with us for two days. And Jesus is teaching. And at the end of those two days, what happens? They say, we no longer believe just because she said you are who you are. We've seen it. And we believe you're the savior of the world. The official... had a need. There's the need he thought he had, and there's the need he actually had. The need he thought he had was a sick son. My son is sick. He needs to be healed. The need he actually had was the need for a savior. 
And when he realized that Jesus' words were true, not just, okay, I'm going to take you at your word and kind of do my thing, hope it works out. When it was demonstrated that Jesus' words were true, he and his household believed. I want to ask you this question because this is hard. Can we take Jesus at his word? Can you take Jesus at his word? Now, you might go, well, what do you mean? Right? What word? What, what, what thing am I trying to take him at his word? Because I understand that sanctification, this growth that we have in the Lord that is really bought by grace and sustained by grace, that is a constant learning how to trust the Lord and what he said. Not a person in this room has that licked. They go, oh yeah, sanctification, I'm on it. I am the holiest, best, smartest person around. I know the most about the Bible. If that's the case, we got some problems, but they're going to get worked out in John chapter 5. Don't worry. Can we take Jesus at his word? What does that mean? Well, that means we don't come for the show. We come for the Savior. That he is God himself. Remember, and I, <clears throat> this is verse 42 of last week's sermon, 442. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So thing number one, can you trust that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Which means, and here's what's hard, okay, I know we're told every day, all of us, at school, at home, at work, everybody's told, you have it, you have the power within you to realize your own destiny, to be your own man, to be your own woman, to be your own person, that if you just try hard enough, do enough, work enough, care enough, that if you just fill in the blank enough, you can realize whatever world you want. Right? Taking Jesus at his word means when we read John chapter 2 and he says Jesus didn't entrust himself to any man because he knew what was in the heart of man, that you're willing to look and go, that's not true. I can't be enough. I can't do enough. I can't be kind enough. I can't work hard enough. I can't do any of those things enough to merit God's favor toward me. That's hard to do. That's hard to do because we are told every day that you have enough. You are enough. Taking Jesus at his word means we have to go, you mean I have a problem? I mean, I know you have a problem. But me? I don't have a problem. And in a, in a moralistic world that wants everybody to be nice and do good, it becomes hard. When we read that the, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, 
Who can understand it? To apply that to us. Like I said, you guys probably have no problem applying that to me. I might have no problem applying that to you. But can we go, I have a problem. It's like when you hear a sermon or a teaching or whatever, or you read a book and you go, that sermon is perfect for, and you fill in the blank with anybody but you. That sermon was perfect for, I wish my dad were here to hear that. He needs it. A lot of people, a lot of people weren't here this morning, Pastor, who needed to hear that sermon. Like, really? Seems like there's a lot of people here who needed to hear it, including me. Can we take him at his word? That he is who he is, the Savior of the world. Which means we have to realize we need one. One of the hardest things for us to be able to do in realizing our need is to get over the fact that whatever worldly success that we've had gets us nowhere with God. It doesn't matter if you've been given the keys to the city. It doesn't matter that you have everybody's name in your phone book. It doesn't matter that you are known and respected and people care about you. It doesn't matter. That is so hard for us to do. It cuts against everything that we are taught. Do we believe that he's the savior of the world? <clears throat> and with that, do we believe that he will heal us from our deepest needs? He will heal the brokenness that exists because of our sin. That he will forgive us. Do we believe that? It's easy to pay lip service to, yes, I believe. Right? We're going to sing songs about it. Right? Yeah, I believe. Right? I believe. I believe. Right? We're bringing up Rich Mullins or whatever. Like We're in. <clears throat> if you're a 90s Christian, like a CCM Christian, then you're in. So I want to say this, because this whole passage, I'm, I'm not mistaken, I, I don't want to be mistaken, you think I'm mistaken here. I recognize this passage is about Jesus healing a man's son from an illness. I recognize that. I also recognize that by the time that this was done, the man and his whole household were healed. He believed and his whole household. And I want to say this, because this can become hard. Because if we miscomprehend it, then what we think is, oh, if I go to Jesus like a slot machine, he'll heal whatever ailment I have. If I go to Jesus, so-and-so sick, right? Oh, it didn't work. Let me pray again, right? And we're just waiting for the healing token to come out so we can use it. Like Jesus is a genie. I cannot... I do not have the ability to know when Jesus will or will not heal a disease. And I'm speaking of me, Hans. I don't know. But I can pray for your healing. I can ask the Lord to heal it. I can put my hands on you. We can anoint you with oil. We can, we can, we can do it all with a confident expectation that God will move. But I still will not be able with confidence to say, yes, it will happen. But I do know that every time a sinner humbly goes to Jesus and asks forgiveness 
and recognizes him as the Savior of the world, that every time he forgives them and he heals them. Every time. There isn't a time. And this was me, fifth grade Hans. I'm going to tell you about fifth grade Hans for the fifth graders in the room. I pray this doesn't be you. This isn't you. Right? I was, I was, I was exposed to the message that, that Jesus saves me from my sins really in a, in a comprehensible way about, about 10 years old. <clears throat> and for maybe three or four years, all I did was wonder if he heard me. You know, in case I prayed it wrong, God, in case I didn't say the words right, maybe in case you were sleeping, in, in case, in case, in case. And, and so, if anything, all I did was get nervous that I wasn't in a relationship with God because I was afraid that I did it wrong. But, does that make salvation about me or about God? It makes it about me. Did I say the right words? Did I say the right words? Like, and you're like, well, what are the right words? Did I, did I use the right things? Did, did, I, did I have the right people around me to do these things? That makes salvation a man-centered endeavor that is about just using words in a certain order that gets you the outcome that you want, which is more like a seance than a savior. This is also hard for us to consider because we have to realize that we have more serious needs than we think. Maybe, you, maybe your life is in shambles because you are debt-ridden. You overspend and under-earn, and you just think it'll be fine. Newsflash, it will not be. It will not be. But that's not your biggest need. Maybe your marriage is in shambles. And you need the Lord to fix it. That's not your biggest need. Maybe you have chronic pain and you want the Lord to heal it. Not your biggest need. Maybe you have a disobedient child and you want the Lord to heal her. Not your biggest need. And we will spend a lifetime running after secondary and tertiary needs thinking that Jesus is a genie rather than going to the Lord broken over our sin. in need of a Savior who says things and means them, that we can take him at his word, the Savior of the world, the one the ruler comes to with a need for healing, leaves because Jesus said he'll be okay, wondering if he will, hearing from his servants that he was healed at the time Jesus said it, and then he realized he was who he said he was. And he and his household believed. For those in the room who have a hard time trusting or think they have more serious problems, I want to say this to you today. Jesus' words are true. He's even truer than any way I can communicate it now. Any way I could illustrate it now, he is more true than even that. Because my words fail to comprehend a gracious, loving Savior of the world. 
They will fail to explain just how true he is. For those in the room who might be interested in Jesus, but you have not trusted in him for your salvation, I want to ask you this. Do you believe that he is mighty to save? Can you do that? without having to put some kind of stake in the ground, right? I mean, I, I, there's times, maybe you've done this, where you walk down an aisle, they give you a Bible with the date on it. You know, anybody have a Bible like that? You have the date on your Bible, and, you, and then they might say something like this to you. Hey, take this with you, and anytime you doubt your salvation, I want you to look at the front of that Bible and look at that date. Uh, no, the date does not save you. I understand the people who go, I have to do that. I have to have some kind of confidence. But if we start to trust in somebody who hand wrote a date in the front of a Bible, then we don't understand this. This is the testimony. This is the same John who is writing the gospel of John. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That's our stake in the ground. It's not a memory. It's not a date. It's not, and this is going to be hard because I'm going to talk to you about baptism at the announcements. It's not that we got baptized. <clears throat> we can look to other things to give us our confidence that we're saved rather than the words of the Savior. Do we believe him? Do we believe him? I have to fight this even in my own baptism testimony. I've been baptized. Tim and I were talking about this. I've been baptized, I think, four times. Four. I'm not kidding you. Like, as a baby, because we grew up Pado-Baptist, and that was how you roll. Uh, so I became a, Christ, became a Christian as a baby. And then um, I got a confirmation, because I guess I became a Christian again. But I don't even know if I believed then. Then in a bathtub. Then in a pool. I, the bodies of water were getting bigger as I went. <laughs> and here's what's funny. Hear me here. Here's what's funny about that with me. I can still feel guilty that I did it wrong. Every time, I mean, I've been walking with the Lord a while. Every time we have baptism ser services, I wonder if I should jump back in that thing and get dunked again. Why? Not because what the Lord said isn't true, because I have a guilty conscience and I feel like I have to prove something to you guys. That's why. They need to see it. They need to see it. No. So I have to go, no, Lord, even obedience that I might have done wrong, or I screwed it up, your grace is sufficient, and I have to remember that. I'm not going to break it. I'm not going to screw it up. You're good. You save. We can take him at his word.